This is a re-release of episode 150 due to my health-related hiatus. Try saying that five times fast. So this one, I think, is simply fascinating. Carlos and team were essentially implementing data mesh in a vacuum. As you know, they looked early in their journey to try and talk to people about doing data mesh and just didn't find anybody. So they just kind of went off and said, we're going to try and do this. So there are so many things that they did that you should consider about your own implementations and what might work and really reflect on what would work from this and what would not, right? I think it's really helpful to think about and and look at these ones that are so different and say, hey, you're still trying to go to the same place, but, you know, so many different things that are succeeding for different teams and what would actually be the right choice for different organizations you can still have success even if you have diametrically opposed choices in a lot of different ways. So I think it's really, really interesting thought experiment to go through and listen to kind of what they did and think about how that could or could not work for your own organization or for other organizations out there. Hi, everyone. This is Jean-Marc. I am the creator of Data Mesh, uh, the founder of Next Data. We are reimagining what data sharing could look like. We are growing our team rapidly and we need you. If you're a distributed systems engineer, if you're a product manager or designer of a large-scale PaaS SaaS infrastructure, please check out our page at nextdata.com and look at our open roles. We'd love to hear from you. A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman. Sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Carlos Saona, Chief Architect at eDreams Odigio. 
As a caveat before jumping in, Carlos believes it's too hard to say their experience or learnings will apply to everyone or that he necessarily recommends anything they have done specifically, but he has learned a lot of very interesting things to date. Keep that perspective in mind when listening to this summary and to the episode in general. Some key takeaways or thoughts from Carlos's point of view. Number one, eDream's implementation is quite unique in that they were working on it without being in contact with other data mesh implementers for most of the last three years, just until recently is when he kind of came into the uh, greater fold of the community. So they have learnings from non-typical approaches that are working for them. So it's interesting to really look at, at that from this perspective. Number two, you should not look to create a single data model upfront. That's part of what has caused such an issue for the data warehouse. It's inflexible and doesn't really end up fitting needs. But you should look to iterate towards that standard model as you learn more and more about your use cases. Number three, I think this one's controversial. Look to push as much of the burden as is reasonable onto the data consumers. That means the stitching between data products, the compute costs of consuming, etc. Those consumers get the benefit, so they should be taking on the burden. Things like data quality are still on the shoulders of producers, though, of course. Number four, I think this one might be extremely controversial. At eDreams, you cannot publish data in your data product that you are not generating. In, in derived domains, generate includes the derived stitching a little bit, but uh, again, this is something they are doing some really interesting things with their data products where they're just around a domain event and it's pretty small. So it's it's a pretty interesting approach. So if you want to learn more about it, go about like an hour and five minutes or so uh, from here into the episode. Number five, when starting with data mesh, there must be a settling period. Consumers must understand that things are subject to change while a, a new producer really figures out things for the first few weeks or months, you know, even when there's somebody who's been producing and produces a new data product, right? That data product needs to be subject to change as people are getting the feedback. Number six, you want to avoid duplicating data. People know this, but you really want to avoid duplicating business logic. Number seven, be careful when selecting your initial data mesh use cases. If the use case requires that kind of very fast time to market, you know, while those have value, you likely won't have the time and space necessary to experiment and learn. You need to find repeatable patterns to scale in data mesh. Hurrying is a way to miss the necessary learning. Seen this, if you go back to um, the Glovo folks, um, Pablo and Havo, they were talking about this as well, that they focused a little too much on getting data products out instead of learning how to better create data products, and it's starting to catch up with them at this point. Number eight, look ahead and build ahead for obvious interoperability, such as create foreign keys for data products that don't exist yet, but they will, right? Think ahead, especially when you know that it's going to exist. It's pretty easy to say, you know, we should be able to map everything out ahead of time. That's obviously not reasonable, but if you know that you're going to want to link this up with another data product in the future, put the foreign keys in, right? <laughs> like, dude, don't, don't only do this with the what exactly can we get benefits from today. Number nine, be clear about what early data mesh participation means. 
what will it net domains that are part of the early implementation? And be specific too about what your early implementation won't include or achieve. Don't overpromise and underdeliver. It's okay to not do everything up front. Number 10, similarly, strongly emphasize that learning is a priority in your early implementation and that you are factoring in learning into promises and estimations. You can't promise you'll find the right solution to a challenge on day one. Things need space to evolve as you learn more. Number 11, making data as a first-class citizen doesn't just happen out of nowhere, right? Oh, okay, we're now the domains own it and it's just going to happen. There, there is incremental work to be done by the domains. Make sure you reserve the time to actually do that work. The data quanta creation and maintenance, right? That, that's additional work on their shoulders, so you need to give them the time to actually do it. Number 12, it is not feasible to have your documentation be fully self-describing for everyone. eDreams chose to set the bar at documentation that is self-describing for readers that already know about the domain. For readers that do not know the domain, that introduction must happen somewhere else. I fully agree with this. I think people that try to say every data product, every data model needs to be fully self-describing for everybody, I, that's just silly to me. It's, it's not reasonable. It's not feasible. Number 13, at the start of a data mesh journey, your central team will likely control all the use cases being served by the mesh. But at some point, self-serve needs to happen. Consumers need to be able to serve their needs without their use cases going through the central team. And that's a good positive step once that starts to happen. And finally, number 14, to make data producers feel a better sense of ownership, A, Look for ways for producers to better leverage their own data. This is brought up in a lot, lot, lot of interviews. B, maximize your number of consumers for their data quanta so there is quicker time to identify issues with that data product, with that data quantum. More eyes means more who can spot issues. And C, create automation to easily you know, quickly let domains identify sources of data loss rather than having to search. With a proper setup, you can make it easy to identify if the data pipeline is the problem. If it's not, then the issue is in the domain and they don't have to spend a bunch of time searching for it. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Carlos Saona here, who is the chief architect at eDreams Odigio, uh, which is uh, a company in the travel space. Um, and I, I came across Carlos because he had presented at a conference. And when I reached out, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. Would you like to come on the podcast? And then he was like, oh, I've been doing this kind of on my own because when he first started out, there wasn't really anybody talking about this out in the open. And so 
he went down, you know, with uh, eDreams, they went down a path of kind of doing this without uh, talking with a bunch of, de- of other people as well. So I think it's a really interesting story about what he's learned, what are the patterns, what are the anti-patterns, kind of what, what are still open questions after being doing this for three years. And then we'll talk about kind of the consumer-driven burden, how much should fall on consumer shoulders, uh, the importance of feedback loops and, and domains consuming from their own data products. What is automated uh, governance? What does it look like when it's actually good? <laughs> and then how to think about embracing silos from the work standpoint so you don't have the constant communication hands-off, but you have the interoperability. And then finally, how can we use data mesh within operations where we still treat analytics as a first-class concern? So with all of that as kind of backdrop, before we jump into the conversation, Carlos, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Yes. Um, first, uh, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me here. I'm Carlos Saon. I'm the chief architect at eDreams. I've been working at eDreams for the last uh, seven, almost eight years, I think. eDreams is a travel online travel agency. Uh, it's uh, the second largest in flights in the world. It's the first in, in Europe. Before that, I've worked uh, in other verticals. I worked uh, in pharmaceutical companies. I worked uh, in video games for a brief period and also in, in computer security. And yes, as you said, in the last, I, mean, I think it was two years ago, we're discussing how we could improve our data systems because we had lots of requirements from uh, machine learning and other analytical stakeholders. And while we were discussing whether the data lakes and we got some RFPs, and we were not really convinced of what, I mean, if that was feasible and compatible with our ways of working and our engineering culture, then we uh, came up with the with the article uh, in Martin Fowler's blog. Um, well, yes, that that took us that path, which was very exciting <laughs> at the beginning, especially because, as you said, there was, I mean, the only source that we had was the article. There was nothing else out there; nobody else doing it. And the article is really a paradigm more than a closed solution. So then we had to basically um, innovate. I mean, I don't innovate. We had to make uh, to fill the gaps on our own. It was really, really quite a challenge. Yeah, it's it's like here's um, a way to think about exercising, and then it's like, okay, but what is my exercise routine actually going to be? What should my weights be? What should be like all of that stuff? Yeah, exactly. Um, so. You know, you were kind of starting down this path. Um, where did you kind of look to start out? Were you looking to start out with the, um, you know, okay, we're going to put a bunch of data products into production, or we're going to we're going to build out all the platform? Like, where did you start out, and and kind of <laughs> where did you learn that you that you maybe shouldn't have started out that way? Since that seems to be the way most people. Well, this was actually a, a strong debate that we had with our stakeholders because. The RFPs that we got from the some big consultant agencies that had really they had experience building data lakes, proposed a way of doing this, where they created a, a big plan, saying, "Well, let us see all the data that you have in your different data silos. Excellent. This is the whole data system you have. We're going to get a project plan over so many months where we will start 
pushing this data and then this data and then this, this and that until we're done, right? So when we discuss using the database paradigm in, in, instead of that, there were some people pushing to replicate the same approach. And we pushed back very strongly. We said, no, it doesn't make sense for several reasons. One is that this paradigm is new. Nobody, I mean, we don't have any anybody else uh, implementing it. We'll, we'll have to learn a lot of things while we do it. So we have, this cannot be a normal project plan where you, you just start. And second, because we, we need to learn, it's better that instead of focusing on, this is the uh, huge amount of data that we have, are we going to put it there? Because writing to the system is easy. Instead of that, we need to go in a different way. We need to just select some use cases and go use case by use case. And also because we are learning, we're going to make a plan of all the challenges that we see from a technical point of view, from a, especially from an organizational point of view. The database is something that is built organically. And then instead of designing the data model for all your organization in one go, we want to you wanted to design some principles and rules. So by going use case by use case and adapting the rules and improving the rules, after some use cases, you have something that a data model that actually fits and makes sense without having without having to have uh, designed it from the I mean at the very beginning in the first go. So and the challenge of designing the rules that when you use them I, uh, in iterations create data model that makes sense is actually more interesting uh, and challenging at, at least from a from from coming from a design um, background than trying to design the whole thing in in one piece. One thing people have been really worried about with that kind of iterating towards a data model is that if everybody's kind of, I mean, I, I kind of think of the people who push back are treating um, the domains like they're, uh, I don't know, like four-year-olds playing football or soccer, you know, where they're just kind of all running around and maybe, maybe chasing the ball, but also going and chasing a butterfly and, you know, kind of going off in their own little directions and that there's not really a, a great thing there versus we're going to iterate towards something that starts kind of in a siloed way and, and that you iterate towards the center, um, that people are worried that that's never going to work. Right. So, when you think about that kind of, you, you talked about a central data model, or do you have a way of creating your data model that might plug in, but also might not plug in to to that central data model where everybody's using the same type of schema or the same, you know, exact interoperability versus there are certain places where it has value um, to keep it in one form and then also to try and put it into the thing that's also broadly interoperable. Because people people get really concerned about that. Yes, I think that, I mean, the system was designed when we designed the architecture. The target picture is that you have a central repository, like like in the data lake picture, right? You have a central repository and all your data is there. Of course, organized and documented, so you can just navigate and browse uh, through it. And then the challenge is, I mean, also at the beginning, we, we didn't just... Um, publicize to everybody, hey, start designing your models and we'll put them all together and we will uh, we hope that they fit together. No, we went one by one and we were designing rules as we went one by one. And we were very selective in the use cases that, that we, from, from all the 
use cases that were out there waiting for somebody to implement them were very selective on which ones we selected for the data mesh and which ones were just left to go uh, with the previous um, data silos that we had. And then the, one of the criteria, we have several criteria to say use cases, right? One was that it, it was a good fit for the stage of learning uh, that we were in that moment because we we also listed the technical challenges that we had and their essential challenges. So we knew at each stage which kind of use case uh, would be a good example. Okay, let's let's see if we can do this or let's see if we can do that. Second, we wanted use cases that uh, did not have a strong time um, time restrictions to them. So if you are in a hurry and you need to this to happen in the next two weeks, then it's not because we're in the learning phase and we reserve the right to maybe stumble with some things. And even uh, after we do it, at least for a few months, we also reserve the right to go back and change things that we already built. So we had all, I mean, all these tenets were very clear with stakeholders and it was totally right to say, well, I'm interested in, in, in trying your system, but with use case, it's better that we do it in the in the old-fashioned way. And then, uh, as I said, a big part of that was we needed to design, we needed, we wanted to to uh, to get design rules and principles that could put we put, put we could put in writing. So then we knew that by adding data product on top of data product on top of data product, the result would be cohesive. For instance, we wanted that every data product that you have uh, has some kind of uh, links, foreign keys to other data products, even if they don't exist yet. But we know that we will exist. We know that eventually all the major entities of all the business domains will be there. So it's important that when you put your own, you put somewhere there, an ID of sorts, so that in the future when everything is there or when the iterations go on, it just happens because then it's interoperable. Well, and, and I think um, one thing Scott Hawkins brought up in his episode that I think was really interesting was um, when they were doing kind of that, okay, we need a single entity for each customer. And, you know, what is the definition of a customer, blah, 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 you know, all that. But um, they they got to a place where they were at like 98 or 99% coverage where it was like, is this person, is this a person? Is this a household? You know, is this person, this other person, you know, across because ITV does um, TV, but they've got, you know, over the air and they've got online and they've got all these different things. And so they were like, well, we got to 99% coverage. This is far better than it was. If we try and go for that exact, like perfect, I think that's, that's where people get and, and you tell people how much they can trust it. But I, I liked what you said as well about the um, we're able to change. I mean, I, I think I, I recommend people say we reserve the right to at any point. We'll, we'll give you plenty of time to know that this is coming, but we're going to sunset these things when they're not useful anymore. And we're going to work with you if you're still using some of the information to move you on to something better. But like you as a consumer have to be ready that this stuff is going to change. We're not going to change it willy nilly. We're not going to have just upstream changes, break everything. And then you just get to wait three weeks or, or six weeks or 12 weeks while we decide to fix it or all of those yes. aspects. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, today it's not the case, but at the beginning when we're learning, and again, we're learning without any 
outside a reference point or, or anything, we had to be very honest with the stakeholders to say, we will tell you when we, th we think this is mature enough and this is the plan and, and, and we had the milestones and everything. But at the beginning, please be advised. You get lots, they get, they got lots of value out of being part of the learning process because we added some features to the data mesh uh, that they didn't have in their, in the legacy data systems. Uh, and that was intentional, by the way, because it's important uh, to have something extra. But they were fully aware of this. At some point, you reach maturity, and then, then it's came over, let's say. Then if you want to break things, uh, then you need to go through a process, and then it's versioning, and then it's more complicated. But I think that for people that want to try this at the beginning, it's, it's very good to have this honesty with stakeholders. And by the way, I, know, I, I don't know if this is a pattern, but another thing that we did is that, because in some of the episodes I've, I've heard about having executive support uh, uh, and, and things like this, is that we had executive support. We, we said from a corporate point of view, look, uh, for the things that we want to do with data, the challenges that we have, we need to improve a lot that we are data systems work. So the way to move forward is going to be the data mesh and this, this, is this new initiative. So that we did, and we had executive sponsorship. But then that's not enough. You have, in a company, we have multiple um, analytical, let's say, stakeholders. Machine learning is one, BI is another, CRM, there are multiple. It's not necessary at the beginning, at least it wasn't for us, that all the stakeholders are on board. Let's say not all of them were super engaged with the project, not because they didn't think that uh, it was not good or had ambition or possibilities, but because either they were okay with the current data silo or they were not okay, but that was not the best moment for them because they had other things going. And this is perfectly fine. And you need to, I, I, I would recommend having the empathy to understand that you don't need all the stakeholders at the beginning to be on board. You need one or two to be willing to cooperate with you because you need them. You need them for the use cases to, to make sense. You need, you need them to validate that what you're building works and everybody's satisfied. But you don't have to push the others. For the others, it's fine if you say, don't worry, this is going to happen but we're not going to decommission any of your old data systems anytime soon. We'll agree with you on a, a time to do that. And before we even discuss this, we need to get the new system to maturity, which is not something that you're going to be involved Yeah, I mean, I think one, uh, you made a lot of really good points in there, but one was business continuity. I think when you're talking to people, this is a really big concern that I think has been underlying a lot of the conversations, but I didn't really... Think about it because I'm like, well, of course, business continuity. When you are talking to people, that's not an of course, right? Like that is a thing that you reiterate. That is a thing that you say, hey, we're going to make sure that you you still have your business as usual, that this is an additive. And exactly what you said as well of, let's say you did have 20 stakeholders that were engaged and wanted to participate. You'd be completely overwhelmed, right? So you yeah. you you find the ones that are willing and and a lot of people are are frustrated because they go well domain abc has all of the best data and we all need all of that best data and they're not engaged and it's like you can find value in these other domains yes i get that that, that is the big treasure trove but if you don't have value in any of your other domains 
then you shouldn't probably be doing data mesh. If the only thing that has any value is, is ABC, then you need to head to just work with ABC and create APIs off of that. And that's that you should don't need data mesh, right? So it, it's unnecessary complication if that's the case. And so, but people are just not, they, they, what a lot of people see, data people and data consumers see is, oh, the power dynamics have flipped. I get to now kind of tell the data producers what they've got to do. And that's a big no, right? Like that's not going to work. That's not going to be a thing. And so um, that's something where I, I, uh, I'm trying to get people to understand that, that aspect of it because otherwise you're just not, you're not having that empathy angle. Exactly what you talked about of the data producers are very, very concerned that if they do data mesh, it's going to open the floodgates for millions of requests, right? And they, they now have to serve every single request immediately. Um, and, and that's not the case, but like, we need to, we need to reassure them of that. So I, I like that you talked about this. I'm not hearing anything that's really an anti-pattern right now, which I think is, is kind of funny because you're doing yeah, because thing most people have. I was thinking about this pattern and the pattern. I'm given that we've done one data mesh implementation, I'm a bit reluctant to tag the things that work well as patterns <laughs> and the things that we discarded or that we would do a bit differently as an anti-patterns because, you know, I mean, I only have one sample. Uh, the, the, I think that one of the things today is that even if you go to a consultant now that it's has been working data mesh since the beginning, which the beginning was what, two years ago, maybe he has three samples, yeah. four. So I can, I can say things that work for us and things that we would maybe do a bit differently today. Uh, but patterns and anti-patterns, I think, is too much uh, for me at this moment to to say. Uh, Which is kind of what I'm trying to be, is the pattern, anti-pattern person, because I, yeah. I, I, I'm at, you know, 100 plus interviews. So what 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 would you say that worked well or or that, you know, you might even recommend because you were like, this really worked well, this was a hard challenge or... This was something that we tried and it didn't work, so we shifted away from it. Yeah, we already mentioned some things like um, getting executive support. This was super useful. Um, not pushing all the analytical stakeholders to be part of this and telling them, don't worry. If timing is not good, then we will talk about this later. But then also make it, making them understand that this was... Uh, path of no return. So eventually you will have to migrate, but this you're not you're, we're not going to risk your your backlog on your work that work. Also something that worked very well was understanding from the first moment that at the beginning you're learning because there's no this there's not a recipe. Even today I think that there's lots of uh places where you can learn about other implementation, but I don't think that today we have a recipe really. Uh, it, this is not a mature uh, paradigm yet. So then you need to factor in the learning when you do your estimations and when you make promises to your stakeholders. I think this is this worked uh, very well. I think also another thing that we think that worked very well was uh, not try to design the whole model of the comp the data model of your company 
at the beginning, but try to do it in iterations. I understand that people are concerned about this, but I think that the the, the thing here is to yes, if we just if you just do one use case by use case, the the chances that at the end you get something meaningful are small, let's say. But I think that you need to change your mindset. You need to you're going use case by use case, not to to your KPI should not be how many terabytes I have in the database. Your KPI should be how mature is my modeling design principles uh, and documentations so that as time goes on, designing a new data product is easier each time because much of much of the questions and problems that you are facing are already being addressed and are in production already. One thing that created frustration uh, because you also need to to say uh, talk about things that didn't work well. One thing that caused frustration and still does actually is that part of the data mesh paradigm is data is a first class citizen in the product lifecycle. But the way the product backlog works is that you have a backlog with lots of ideas, new features for the for the end your end customers, technical debt. They got improvements, data, and data products. So then, being a first-class citizen, we're talking about power, is that you're treated like just like everybody else and not as a special case, a special, a special project because we're going to do this new project. And this, I think, is a good target picture, and that's why we follow. But it's also true that I think that at the beginning, it can be a very good idea to, to, to ease the frustration of, of the analytical stakeholders to reserve, talk with the product teams and reserve maybe a small percentage of time uh, for doing this. Not in all the domains, but in the domains where you think uh, that your first use cases are going to happen. This has to be something temporary because it cannot be sustained in time. But if I had to go back, I think uh, I we may use the executive uh, push and support that we had to try to you know reserve a percentage of time in a few teams to do to, to, I think that would have helped uh, speeding up things and preventing some frustrations with uh, with analytical stakeholders. Yeah, I mean, when you think about, um, I, I'm doing some things around uh, driving buy-in and, and part of it is that exactly of, of going to somebody and saying, this isn't additional things on your plate, right? This is, we're going to rearrange what you've got so that we're not overloading your plate because you're, you know, you, you domains already have enough things that you're you're dealing with. But we're going to put it into the priority list, and it's not that this is and it is instead of, and that other stakeholders understand that this is instead of that other work does get deprioritized to focus on this, and that that has to be okay or it's not going to work. You can't move forward. If, if you don't give people additional resources and capabilities and, and you know, the time to actually learn how to do this, not just the time to do it, but they have to learn how to do this, right? You have to give them the, the you can't just be like, okay, now you have to learn about all this stuff in your free time. So yeah, it's, I think it's, it's important to make sure that people are aligned and aware on that because it's really easy to not be. It's very, very easy to, to overlook that. Letting the, Letting the use cases drive the whole process also helped because 
we try to prioritize use cases that that already would have been prioritized and would have replaced items in the, in the backlog anyway. So there was enough push with the value of the use case, and we just uh, moved on top. We just leverage the push that the use case had. But at some point, you exhaust these use cases, and you need to use other business cases that are not not that strong. And then and then is when the frustration starts to to, to appear. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that makes sense. Um, so I mean, we could go down this uh, for for hours and hours, but uh, let, let's talk a little bit about, you, you talked about this a, a little bit, but I want to talk about where you found balance between what do, I, I did a, a mesh musing a long time ago about what do we owe each other? And part of this is exactly that, like we owe each other the understanding that we're learning, the understanding that this is, we're, we're, we're going to iterate and that consumers have to understand that they can't lock into this is my report and this will be my report for forever versus like, hey, our understanding of this has changed. Our our data feeds, especially external data feeds, those have changed. We don't have any control over that, you know, all of that. So, um, but the the balance between what should be on the producer and what should be on, on the consumer, you know, some people are saying everything should be on the consumer, you know, if that's financially, that's testing, that's yeah, you know, a lot of the design work, that's all of that. But, um, you know, when we've seen putting the requirements on the consumer, that doesn't work well because you get lots of requirements that are not actually required or useful. <laughs> so, like, how did you think about that? And, and and what have you learned that you think other people could learn from from what you've done? This yeah, this actually was one of the things in the original article, it was one of the things that caught our attention the most because... I think that anybody that is interested in the data mesh already has some data systems working. They have a data lake or they have multiple data silos. This is already happening and they ha- they already have experience with this, these kind of systems, right? One of the tenets of the data mesh paradigm in the article was that instead of having all the work done by data engineers afterwards, the ownership of the data should, should be part of the domain teams. And this is totally, for us, totally right. This is the way it should be. But if you think in the in the, the way the process of moving, acquiring data and sharing data with others works, not in the data mesh, but in all your data system, the data system that you already have, what is the normal thing that happens if you think about producers and consumers? Who is asking for data more often? Who is more willing to invest time into having new data? Who is pushing back? Is the cost-benefit equation symmetrical? I, I think not. I think it's always the consumers that want more data and always the producers that are pushing back because there's nothing for them there. Yes, at the company level, everybody wins, but at the team, at the domain team level, the domain team usually doesn't get anything out of it other than an overhead, like a, a data tax that they pay every time. So then when we designed the architecture, what we had as a principle is the goal is to have the, the domain teams feel the ownership of the data they share with the others. Right. And also, every time that we have the choice to push the effort of this sharing of data to the consumers, we're going to do it. 
every time. When we design everything, everything that can be pushed to the consumers is going to be pushed for the consumers. So then, also in the article, for instance, it was mentioned that one way of one uh, way of defining your data quantums was going to be the domain events, right? For us, it was perfect because we were already on that path, and we, as a starting point, we say, okay, all the all our data quantums, all our data products, if you want, are going to be domain events. But of course, domain events are very small in the sense that in our case, a domain event can be a booking has been cancelled. This is fine, but doesn't tell you the whole state of the booking, for instance. So you would be tempted to say, okay, when I when I share the data that booking has been cancelled, I'm going to share, yes, it has been cancelled, with and the reason for cancellation is this and that and whatever. And also I'm going to share the whole state of the booking because whoever is interested in this also probably is going to be interested, interested in the data of the booking, the names of the people, how many passengers, seats, whatever. We decided against this. We said, no, when we the data product is going to be, a booking has been canceled. We're going to put there the ID of the booking, the reasons for the cancellations, and the data of the cancellation, and that's it. It's forbidden to put anything else. Why? Because if you make the data product as small as possible, you're making the effort for the data producer smaller. And yes, it means that if I'm a consumer, if I'm a consumer and my ethical mm, concern is to calculate trends or do aggregations, actually, it helps the smaller it is because I don't care about all the other details. In fact, I'd rather not have to depend on that because when the schema for the details change, I will not have to change my, my consumption, my goal. But it's true that if I'm a consumer that actually wants to know about the details of the booking, if the domain events is, are so small, it forces me to do all the stitching on my own, right? So we decided that there was an excellent idea. Consumers, all the stitching that needs to happen, if possible, will is on the shoulders of the consumers. It's on them to do it. Which creates more cost for the for the consumers, it's true, but minimizes the cost for the producers. And also, in our experience, one thing that happened uh, with previous systems was that people agreed on sharing this particular data product. It was not called data product then, but it doesn't matter. It's a data set. And then what happens when the producer needs to change the schema for whatever reasons, their own reasons? What typically happens is that you have three or four customers, and then some of them are willing to upgrade. Others tell you that they cannot. you have to wait one month, three months, six months, one year. And probably they're right. But then what happens with the producer that they have they have to support the new system and the old system for I don't know how, how much time. So the smaller, so at the end, even the stitching uh, and upgrade costs of the consumers go back to the producers again. So the smaller you make your data products and the more the stitching is left on the consumer side, the less the not only the the initial cost but the maintenance cost cost also is uh, in the system, and this for us, it's critical because it, it means that the maintenance, the overhead maintenance for the producers, is minimized, and that's, uh, let's say, a requirement if you want the data products really to have a life of, of its own, and the, you want the domain teams to actually take ownership of of those things. Yeah, so I, I think a lot of what you said there, it's funny because um, I recently had on Amara Gafur and her, um, she kind of talked about the same thing, but with 
kind of very big source aligned data products, right? She's mm-hmm. working at a at a company or as a client that's got 100,000 people, right? And they've got 21 total domains, right? Very high level domains, you know, not, not the two pizza team domains. They don't have 21 two pizza team domains in that. But they're not exposing the source aligned data products to the end consumers because they're it makes it so that the domains can manage the kind of external communication out of those as the product instead of the actual data quantum that are kind of more large as the product. But a lot of what I'm seeing that's working, the more that you reduce the burden, the additional cognitive load, the additional difficulty on the producers, the better. But I do have two questions that this brings up. One is data catalog, right? Like when you think about data discovery and you think about, do you have 5,000 data products and how do you actually find what you want to find? Is it that you're, you're at, at, and then the, the second one is, so to me, the, the burden shouldn't be only on the consumer. The burden should be on the data engineering team uh, for a lot of this about providing the constituent, the consistent ability to cross query and stitch, right? That it's not, you're pulling and doing this, you're pulling and doing, you know, doing all this manual work to, to bring it together. You talked about kind of the, the sing, you know, the overarching data model, which helps from that perspective as well. But like, how do you think about combating both of those? So that if, if there are changes to one small data product, are there 50 different, you know, stitching queries that are based off it that it's going to impact or are there 50 downstream data products that it's going to impact? Like, how do you think about those? I know I know I ask a lot, but that's a big, big question that, that comes up with this. This is a, an excellent question, actually. We have a data catalog. We are using Google's data catalog. And actually, part of the architecture, the part of the data pipeline, what it does is that it's the, it's the owner of the data product, which is a domain team usually, that is in charge of documenting the data product. They write the documentation. And because you want data products to be first-class citizens, it means that they do this in the repository where they have their code. But they do it in a specific uh, format so that our pipeline can automatically, when they create it or when they update it, update this documentation in the data catalog. And as part of the metadata that you have to uh, put in place in your repository when you want to publish something as a data product, you also put things like which part of the platform is generating this, which team is owning this. So then if, I, if I'm a, somebody in machine learning and I want to check if there's something about I don't know, bookings, flights, I can go to the tool and do a text search and there I will see some the this, the data products that have that that word uh, inside. I can browse the documentation, I can see which teams are in charge of that. And then here I think there's a debate of of uh, about how useful useful are data catalogs. I think that for some people, once that happens, what they expect is that the the, the analyst with the documentation that is in the data catalog, it's okay, that's enough, I can do my work. Actually, and that's a, that's a good debate that we have also internally, because some people wanted the documentation of each data product to be self-contained and self-sufficient. But we decided against this because I personally think that this is, this is impossible. 
this is unfeasible in any minimum uh, in a company that has a minimum complexity. And what we agreed was, if I'm an analyst, I'm already knowledgeable in one particular domain, I should expect the documentation to be enough so that I don't have to ask any more questions. But if I don't know anything about the domain, the data catalog is not going to explain to me how the domain works. It's going to tell me who is the owner of this data product so I can go there and start asking questions about the how the domain works. Yeah, that, that's a point that I've made uh, a lot as well. And and I think this is the same thing with self-describing data models. Yes. That, that's just a ridiculous thing to me of, of, you know, this should be absolutely understandable by everybody. It, it, it's this this thing of people who are too focused on their data literacy versus sensible data literacy. And exactly that your documentation should be it should cover 80% and then you've got a, a contact me button, right? You've got, you've got the little chat button yes. or whatever to, to do that. Um, but are you finding the data discovery is challenging because there are, say, I, I want to look at bookings. Let's say I want to, I'm trying to figure out, uh, I'm a data scientist and I'm like, I want to look at bookings. You know, if you've got 200 data products in your company, 150 of them are going to show up. So like, do you, like that, that's the other issue that I think of really small data products is that there's so many that you might be poking at. And and then I'll tack on another question because I'm just being extra right now, but um, how do you can, how do you ensure a consistent experience across those? Yeah, this is an excellent question again. At the beginning what happened was that we were in control of, of all the use cases. So we could explain to everybody and everybody was already inter- interested in that, in those domains. Now what happens, we have over, I think, 200 different data products, is that people on their own, in a self-service mode, which is what the paradigm says it should happen, go there, and then they have this challenge. So far, we haven't had one single problem with people not being able to stitch thing, doing their own SQL queries. None. Because at the end, data analysts, data engineers are already very knowledgeable about SQL. They're super fine with that. The problems that they find is that because now we have a repository where you have data products of multiple very diverse domains that opens the door to exploiting that data and, and crossing it in ways that before were not possible. So then... All the questions that we get and all the we we have created some forums to to explain this are domain questions. People say, but what does this mean? Because because what happens is that they don't know about all the domains in the company, which is normal. So then what we require is someone to invest a little bit of time um, regularly to answer these introductions. To, uh, yes, to, to give this introduction to domains so that then data analysts can just, okay, uh, then I'm going to do this query and this query, and then I'm going to get more advanced questions about what the data means, and they're going to find, for instance, suspicious or weird things with data that, in fact, are not about the data, but about the behavior of the platform. So that's been the challenge, really. It's now you have the option of being in contact with all the domains, 
by doing a few queries uh, and text searching the data catalog. And then you have this hunger to understand domains that in the past were just out of scope. The SQL thing and stitching 50 tables, it's it's not a problem. It hasn't been so far. How often are you having data products change, right? Because if, if or at least the output, you know, the API or, or however people are consuming from them, because that that's where, it, you know, all of a sudden, is this going to impact 50 different dashboards and, you know, all of that? And, and we'll jump into how far does ownership extend into dashboards and, and talk about that in a second. <laughs> yes, today, this was a, a surprise that we had. I think that because we are using domain events and because one of our main stakeholders is actually machine learning and data scientists, we thought that we will have problems with versioning and, and data changes very soon, but it, it has hardly happened. Also because I think it's a, a consequence of our decision to make the data products as small as um, possible while not losing semantic cohesiveness. So then we had a few instances of changes, but very few. And also when we had them, they were in data products where the retention defined was very small, were maybe a few weeks or a couple of months. And in those cases, it's very easy to handle. The problem is when you have this in a, in a data product that has years of, of retention, that's where things are. We think anyway that this is going to happen. And actually one of the things that we're working now is to include versioning and versioning policies that are automatically uh, imposed on the data mesh as part of the system. Today, we treat, it, we, treat it, we treat it as ad hoc, and so far, it's been good. We want to, we have to, we want to have it in place before uh, it hurts us uh, in a big way. And then you have to discuss about backward and forward compatibility, and you want to discuss having a default policy for everybody, but it has to be tunable because not all the use cases are the same. And maybe some consumers are willing to lose part of the compatibility for a limited set of time, but this has to be a contract between them and the producers. All this is uh, one of the things that we're working on. Yeah, I think that versioning and that, um, I, I want to see platforms that can actually detect, does this person need to care, right? If that you, you like, hey, we're looking at doing this new version and it's like, oh, this person doesn't consume it in that way. So boom, they don't need to even care. I'm just going to up them to the next version versus this person does. So like you need to have a conversation, but you can get that information as to who's consuming what and 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 all of that. I, I, yeah, there's there's a million different questions we could we could dig down into this, but I I did want to talk to you about something that is coming up a lot, which is feedback loops. And you know, domains consuming their own data products. I think on the the feedback loop side, people in data haven't done feedback loop and iteration. So, because the cost of change in data has been so so difficult, and everything was so coupled that any change was <laughs> had to be coordinated with a million other changes. So, how have you found? data producers, data consumers, and, you know, kind of the data folks in the middle that are now kind of not necessarily in the conversations that they always were, how have you seen their attitudes around? And then, and then we could talk about how that leads into how domain should, should consume their own data. But I'd like to talk about that first. Yeah. I think feedback loops at the beginning, as I say, that 
we identified the, the one of the biggest challenges to it was to actually make a reality that domain teams actually feel the ownership of the data they, they, they share. As we discussed before, one of the ways of doing this is to decrease the cost of producers as much as possible. But there's another thing that you can do, which is also increase the value of what they do. Because the, the more you increase it, the more that when they, the prioritization gain happens, the more your data features or bug fixes are, are going to, to pop up there. So we found we were looking for um, as many ways as possible so that to increase the value of the data product. One, of course, very, I mean, the, the, the very obvious one is, okay, let's, let's try to find ways so that the producers consume their own data. Another, second to that, is, okay, what if you maximize the amount of consumers that a given data product has? And here again, if you design your data products to be as small as possible, your schema as small as possible, and you force consumers to stitch, this also has another side effect, which is that many more many more consumers are going to be consuming your data product, because if you put if you do the stitching at the at the producer level, then multiple producers are stitching the same thing over and over again, but it means that when there's a problem, the stitching is done because it's done with a particular consumer in mind. If the model is not done with a consumer point of view, but only with the data that you have then many consumers are stitching your data, which means that when there's a problem and, you, and a consumer complains, there are other consumers that are also uh, hurting because of this, which increases the value of, the, of, of doing the fix. And then we have tried to add automations that are feedback loops that are helpful uh, to the teams or to operations. Like, for instance, we added one of the problems that typically had in our systems in the past was when there are problems with data and there's data loss, people complain, there's always two places to look. One is the team that is producing the data and that maybe they have a bug and they're losing data. Or maybe it's the pipeline. Maybe it's the people in charge of the data pipeline that is losing the data. And just just deciding who looks at the problem first takes a lot of time in the first place. So we decided, okay, let's do something. Now we have the data mesh. It's relatively easy for us. If you configure in your data product, you have IDs of other entities. So if you tell us, if you tag these IDs in a certain way, we can continuously run queries and see if the foreign keys are missing. And by that, we can get a percentage of, let's say, data loss in any in each of the data products. Which means that if there's more than one team using this, we can also we also put alerts. So we tell people and and they get something out of it. But it also helps you because if you have a problem in the data pipeline, which is generic and the same for everybody, you will see a data loss everywhere. Whereas if the problem is with the domain team, with the team that's producing the data, data loss will only, will only happen in their data product. So then suddenly we don't have any more discussions about where problems are when there are problems. It's very easy to see. And this is another feedback loop that helps people uh, e uh, seeing the value in the data mesh. And also for the producers, usually they get something out of this because they get KPIs on, the, on their own things, on their own business entities, and they can create their own dashboards and they can, can create they can create their own alerts. And if that happens, 
then the analytical stakeholders are in a perfect situation because when they are promised with data, the domain teams are the first to know and the first to have an, uh, an interest in, in fixing the problems. That's, yeah, that's, it's kind of funny how all of your, I mean, this is kind of the reason why so many people are blocked on moving forward on data mesh is that all of these choices end up having different impacts. You know, if you didn't go for these small, like single, you know, domain event type of, of data products, everything would be, you'd have different challenges than the challenges that you do have, but it seems to be working pretty well, especially for, I, I think some of the challenges that other um, teams or other organizations have is that there, in some cases, there are things that aren't really domain events, right? Like they're, they're yeah. organization events and that trying to, like, it has a different impact on all these different domains. And so is there a domain around that type of event or you have one-off events or you have like, you know, or relatively unique events and so all, of, yeah. One of, one of those is, one of the surprises that we got in the process was we, we, we thought at the beginning that we would start with domain events, but that would not be enough. It would not be enough for sure because there are some stakeholders for which the domain event is too, too small. For instance, BI. BI wants to have a snapshot of entities. They don't want to know that booking is canceled. They want to, they have their own booking record. And there, maybe there's a, 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 a column that says status, and then it's canceled. But as you can imagine, there are literally more than 100 events that have happened related to a booking. So they don't want to be able. They want. They don't want to code all the things that all the business logic that that is required to transform the business event into a record. And that would be a very bad idea, actually, because then I mean, it's bad duplicating data, but duplicating business logic is even worse. So we had in our backlog a different system where we would publish snapshot of entities. The surprising thing for us was that domain events look very tiny, but in a complex organization, you have domains that consume other domains. And what looks like an aggregate is actually a domain event for these domains. Let me put an example. I, I talk about this in the, in the talk. There's a domain that deals with flights and booking flights, right? This is this is clear. But then there's another domain that actually takes care in our case of uh, SEO pages. They they generate pages to to make uh, SEO happen. And for that domain of SEO, it's super important to know about the popularity of flights regarding I mean, of routes, of cities, of airports. They don't care at all about the booking details. They care how many people are looking for flights from Barcelona to New York. So for them, what happens is that they are interested in aggregating the domain events of when a booking happened, when a booking has confirmed, and they, they build their own database regarding how many bookings you have from in Barcelona or from Barcelona from New York. And there are other domains that are inter interested in these aggregated events, like, uh, you know, there's another booking in Barcelona. But this means that you some of these aggregates are actually domain events of other domains that are doing all the aggregation. So part of the transformations that usually happen in the identical world actually have a meaning and, and make sense inside the e-commerce platform and so on. So you know you have domains, some 
domain aligned events are really domain aligned at the source, and others, even though they are no domain, they're still aligned to a domain team. It's just that it's an aggregate, and there's some stitching. Some domains do stitching of other domains, which means that quite often you can pull off these kind of aggregations and derive uh, entities like uh, the history of a customer with domain events, but in the domain of the customer, not in the domain of the booking, for instance. Still, in our backlog, we have the snapshot thing uh, for customers like like BI. It's another thing that of the things that we're work, working on. And it sounds like you're you're also not trying to do the the anti pattern of of the customer three sixty type thing, right? Where you're like, okay, we're we're now going to stitch everything together into one thing instead instead of like, hey, we're still kind of keeping this. We we are creating these domain events that are from the smaller things, but we're still trying to keep them as small as possible and powering use cases. But yes, yeah, because customer history is something that I think many e-commerces will want, but that's a domain in itself, which means that you can have things like this customer has booked a flight instead of this this flight has been booked. It's from a different perspective. So then it's on the shoulders of the domain the team that is in charge of the customer history to do all this teaching. Because also, in many cases like ours, even the identity of the customer is something that depends on the domain. Because people do not usually log in in many e-commerce platforms. Right? So the identity of a customer is something that depends. Depending on the domain, you know the identity or you can guess. So then many of these concerns are actually domain dependent as well. And will change depending on which team is processing this data. So the stitching is going to be different. And the, the identification of the customer is also going to be different. Yeah, and that, that I don't want to get into it too deeply because I, I, I want to be cognizant of time, but um, that also can create the concern of um, when you have so many different things that you could take data from, you might it can lead to the same thing of, when someone asks a question, if two people ask the same question, you get two different answers and both are correct. But like, well, we, we, we can save that for a later day. But like that, that's always also an interesting question. But um, a lot of what you were talking about here really, I think, transitions well into the what does good governance look like? Because exactly what you're talking about, PII, right? Like PII, when you're talking about having all these data products, I'm like, oh, how how can you deal with PII for um, consumers? Because a lot of companies are having like registered use case consumption, right? Where you say, how are you going to use this before I give you access, right? Because this has sensitive information and things like that. So how are you approaching that that challenge? And, and in general, what does kind of good automated governance look like? Yes. Conceptually, we have Separate, separate governance in two different um, levels or layers. The first one is governance that, that applies to absolutely everyone, no exceptions whatsoever. For instance, the, the presence of standard metadata in each data product, like when something happened, who's the owner, the version of the schema, the existence of a schema, because we don't allow data products without a well-defined schema. And this Global policies are enforced automatically by the by the pipeline system. There's no way somebody can publish a data product and make it accessible to others without having this common set of metadata. There's no way <clears throat> that you cannot you do not conform to this. 
this includes, for instance, it's on your it's your responsibility to tag the information that is personal. We have a definition, a legal definition of what is personally identifiable information, so you have to tag this. We also have to comply with regulation with credit card systems, so you also have to tag information like credit card numbers and expiration dates and things like that. And this is imposed by the system and by the libraries that developers use to push data into the into the database. There's another different layer, which is policies that are actually contracts between producers and, and consumers. For instance, the data quality of a given data product. How many errors do you want to... What is your SLO in terms of data loss, for instance? How accurate is this? This is something that depends first on the domain because some... It's not the same uh, business domain, which is very mature and it's, it's, it's a, a core part of the of the company. Is that's very different from a new idea, a new domain that is being tried out in the in, out in the wild. The requirements are different, and it's not only depending on the domain, but also on the use case. For some people, like machine learning people, when they are doing their modeling, if the volumes are high, it's fine to have some data loss. For other people, like BI or financial analyst, then errors are not so uh, acceptable, let's say. You, know, you have to reconcile data. So then the, all these contracts depend on the producer and the consumer and need to be talked between them. So what the platform does is that it has a, a automated system that allows to monitor these policies and to have them accessible to everybody. So as I described before, the system that we have to, to take data logs in the in the the, all the measurements it does are actually it's actually a data product in, on its own. So if I'm an analyst, I'm interested in a, in a data product, I can see if there's a data product measuring the error levels in that data product. If it doesn't exist, it's because the owner is not producing uh, the data. Then I know what to expect. If it exists, I can see how how is it behaving uh, during time. I can see if last month uh, it was good or bad, or is it, or if it's good for me. So on one side, you have governance that it's enforced for everybody. And on the other hand, you have governance that it's something between producers and consumers. And what the platform does is just to provide a framework so that everybody so can see uh, whether this is working or not. And it's transparent and alerting people when, when it, it doesn't. Yeah, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think one thing that I've been struggling with on the contract side is one, um, oftentimes consumers enter into contracts in their head instead of actual contracts where they even like tell the producer they're consuming and and how and all that. But like the other aspect is when I bring out a data product, right? I'm going to bring out a new data product. I don't want to overly burden myself from an SLO, SLA standpoint um, by, you know, saying I'm going to do it with five minute timeliness and 99, you know, five nines accuracy and, uh, you know, five nines completeness and, fi you know, all this stuff. Um, so how have you treated, is that, that you just kind of have a, uh, here's some really generic, um, things for, for your data product and they're pretty low effort to hit. And then yeah. when consumers are coming to you, then you iterate on those and, and that, and Sorry, another question is, how do you balance it? Um, Emily Gorsinski had an, uh, a webinar that she did last year where they had the exact same data product twice. And one had five-minute timeliness SLA, 
but the um, accuracy rate was 90% versus a two-hour timeliness SLA, but the accuracy was four nines. So like, how do you balance between those as well, Like, if you're going to have this many consumers? Yes. One of the advantages, bigger advantages of automating all this is that you are forcing to have a, to put a data product in production, you have to create some code, let's say some definitions, some YAML files where you describe who you are, the retention period, these policies, which means that that works like filling a form, first point. Second point, it happens very often that when people come and say, hey, I want to get a data product and say, okay, what's your retention? They say, well, I don't really know. Let's ask the consumer. The consumer is uncertain. So it, it helps a lot if for all these policies, the system provides a default value. Say, okay, if you are uncertain, this is the default value, and don't worry, it's going to change. This this helps a lot in this regard. The other about thing about duplicity of data products, it hasn't happened to us. I think it's very difficult that it does because one of the constraints that we put, remember that we don't we minimize the size of the, the, the schema of the data product. It has to be the minimum. We also put out a constraint, which is, and we force the stitching to happen on the consumer side. We have, a, have another constraint, which is you cannot publish a data product, which data, that is not data that you are generating. If it's data that somebody is giving to you, you cannot, that, that data it cannot be in your data product. You can put an ID, so it refers to that data, and if it doesn't exist yet in the damage, it's fine. It will exist in the future or not. It doesn't matter because we don't enforce foreign keys. But that means that it's really, really difficult that to have duplicity because you can only publish the data that you are actually generating. And if you're interested in relating this to something else, then you have to put an idea of that something else and that's it. So like, let's go back to the aggregated domain. Like this is, this is where it gets really nitty gritty. It gets really obnoxious around the exact meaning of words and all of this. And English is actually a really, really bad language around exact meaning because it's, you know, the people talk about it's rifled through, you know, 500 languages to, to get where it is. But um, so you talked about if you aren't generating the, the data, you can't put it in your data product. Exactly what you talked about, the, those BI domains or those those other domains, the the customer history domain isn't generating the information. So how does that work? Yeah, but the thing here is that it's excellent question again. Today we're modeling everything with domain events. So what they said applies to domain events. The other thing about entities, the whole picture, the snapshot of the whole entity, is something that we're working now. But we will use the same rule. Because each, first, the entities that the platform is going to publish are the entities as defined by the e-commerce platform. Because, and I don't think this is unusual, the definition of a booking that the transaction system has is not the same as BI has. BI actually enriches that booking with other things. And in the past, our data pipelines for BI we're doing that stitching in the platform and then pushing to BI the complete, let's say, entity that BI wanted. But we we're going to use the same, let's the consumers do the effort uh, principle. We will publish the e-platform definition of booking, which is not what BI wants. BI wants to stitch that with other entities. Okay, 
So then they will have to go to the other domain teams, owners of others, those other domain entities, and mix it on their own. So the same principle applies. You cannot publish an entity that is not fully owned by you. And if it's not fully owned by you, then it's not an entity, really. You can't, you can't have an entity split in different teams. And then if consumers want to mix entities on their own, fine, excellent. They can do that afterwards on their own. So is, is the customer history domain not publishing something themselves because they are taking the data from everywhere else and they may be enriching it, they may be combining it, but then that yes. creates a new, yes. almost a new thing in, in and of itself. But that that's where I think people get concerned as well of, it sounds like with your approach, it's not going to be a big issue, but of downstream, of downstream, of downstream, of downstream. And so you're, you're like trying to track all of the, well, you know, if you think about 99% quality level, I think 99% after like six iterations is down to like 60% quality level or whatever the, the math is. So like, how do you have that, that approach? Uh, that could happen, but also an important part of this is that the main events are not only used to push data into the BigQuery analytical platform with all the tables of the time HR. Actually, the main events are consumed by microservices in the platform to perform their work. So if there are problems with the data quality of data events, even if they have gone through multiple um, transformations between domains, then we have a, a severe problem independent of the analytical platform. One of the advantages also of using domain events is that they're not only used to push data into tables, they're used within the platform for its own operation which is another guarantee of quality. And yes, it's still, it's true that for the customer history, probably you don't need maybe the whole history of a customer. Maybe, maybe it's enough to with sharing the last year of history. But if, if you really need the whole history and you need it, for instance, because in your profile, when a customer goes to their profile in the system, they want to see the whole history, then it has to be the whole history. And remember, when they call customer support, they're going to use that data as well. So it has to be there anyway. Yeah. That's that's kind of a, a guarantee that comes from using the data not only for analytical purposes, but using the same data uh, in the platform as you share in, in the data. It's another advantage of using the main events. Well, I, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm sure we could talk for another hour, hour and a half at least, but... Um, We've covered a lot, you know, we were planning on time kind of talking about the the silos and using data mesh for operations, but I think we'll save that for a future conversation or, or a meetup or something. But um, is there anything that we, we didn't cover that you think like people should really know anything where you would say, this is something that, that people should know or any way you'd want to kind of wrap up the episode? We don't have the time to get into into the details, but I think that the, this operation operations thing I feel that we, you can find, you can have your cake and eat it too. If you use the main events, you're actually, when we define the schema and the policies and everything, the data quantum that ends up in the BigQuery tables where machine learning guys and BI can, can use it, is exactly the same thing that is published in the, the main event, which is happening in the, it's being published in the message bus and the streaming system. So this means that in practice, all the data you have in data mesh, for any purposes, and you can query and be query, it's also there in the platform. 
what we have forbidden totally is to actually query the analytical system from the transactional part. This is forbidden because of many reasons, uh, legal, privacy, and operational, because the latency is different. But the data is there already. So you can have both things. And we think in the future, another thing that we have in the backlog is to include data coming from third-party systems, not, not only our, our, our e-commerce platform, but other parties. When this happens, if that data is only needed for identical purposes, it will go directly in its own data pipeline. But if that data at some point needs to be used also in the platform, what will have to happen is that some domain team will have to do that integration. And then we will be able to share it again within the platform and with the identical system. Yeah, and I think some people get a little worried about the, the duplication of that, but I think I think that overhead person that's forever because it's all automated. If we you publish the same data, and then you consume from the message bus to get it into the table. So it's exactly the same and it's automated. So there's little uh, room for error. And then you get uh, data for identical people in almost real time in five fifteen minutes. Yeah, uh, which I think it's a I think it's a nice feature that we have. And again, it's part of the original article about using domain events. So I think that I hope I hope that this doesn't end up being an anti anti pattern in in a couple of years. I th I think stream everywhere might be, but I think like stream most places isn't right. You know what I mean? That 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 aspect of it. Like if you don't need batch, you don't need, or if you don't need streaming, you can do batch. Like it's great, but if you've already got it then it's not an issue, right? <laughs> like yes. you should use what you already have. And yeah, exactly. So, um, well, I, Carlos, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you after this. Um, where's the best place? What What would you like them following up about? The best place is LinkedIn. And we are super interest, interested in hearing about other people working on data mesh. What have they done? Uh, questions, because we honestly think that this is a growing uh, space, and the more that we share, the sooner we'll get to 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 good places of us. So we're super happy. If you have questions, if you, if you want to share your experiences, I'm super happy to to hear all about it. And yes, LinkedIn is the best place to for it to happen. That's literally the concept of why I created the community. So I'm I'm, I'm right there with you. Thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. I think it's super useful. Yeah. So, well, uh, Carlos, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you as well, everyone out there for listening. Thank you. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Carlos Saun, Chief Architect at eDreams Odigio. You can find a link to his LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs, but I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month -month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, 
you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.